For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Our Holy Father, we thank you that when we were in the deadness of our sin, that in your great mercy, while we were ungodly, while we were rebels, while we were sinners, that Christ Jesus died for us. And we're so thankful for the incredible payment of his blood. And you promised us here that if you could save us while we were yet enemies, you can certainly keep us now that we are reconciled, now that we are your friends. We pray in this hour it would be an equipping time for those who know you, that we might be better equipped to share the greatest news man can ever hear. But we also ask and pray for those who have never come to a true conversion, they've never been born again, that today would be a turning point. May the Spirit of God work, may He help me today, may all that takes place on this campus through the evening be blessed and honoring to our Savior in whose name we pray, amen. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Uh, This is Friend Day, and uh, every once in a while, it's been several years, I like to take a little booklet that you'll find in the seat back pocket. You can take that with you. There's more at the exits as you leave. It's entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? It's in many languages. It's in Kosi and Russian and Hindi and Telugu and Spanish and Japanese and Mandarin and just a bunch of languages. And of course, it's in English. And it's a simple way in which to share the gospel. And let me just say, if you are here and you truly know the Lord Jesus and you have not introduced anyone to Christ in the last few years, I have an assignment for you. I want you to pray earnestly this week that God will give you someone in the next 10 to 14 days that you could share the plan of salvation with. And if you haven't seen anyone come to Christ in the last few years, maybe the methodology you are using just is not working. And so, like the Ethiopian eunuch, who's reading the scriptures, one of the great prophetic portions of the Bible that describe the death, burial, and the resurrection 700 years before it ever happens. He says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And so this is a simple explanation. It, it puts definition to the verses around it. It's kind of a running commentary. And I tell people all the time, if you'll just read the booklet, if God gives you an open door and you just read the booklet, come up for air every once in a while and ask a question. I promise you, you will see people come into the kingdom of God. Now, as you came in this morning, you received a bulletin, and you might want to use it. There's uh, two questions in the bulletin that... I'd like to ask by way of introduction this morning. You'll see it on the back page, and you might want to jot down a few notes. Really, all you have to do is read the booklet, but sometimes there's some things that you might add beyond the commentary that is here that might be useful in helping you to introduce someone to the Lord Jesus. But the first question is very simple. On a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea. 100, I have no doubt. How sure are you if this were your last day on earth? that you would go to heaven. Are you 25% sure, 50, 75, 100, member, non-member alike? 
believer, unbeliever, mark it there. There's a pen in the seat back pocket. Just mark it. Put on that scale where you might place yourself. Now, I will tell you parenthetically, you can say you're 100% and be 100% wrong. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus taught that in Matthew 7 of a great multitude, and he doesn't go for some ho-hum false testimony. He goes for the most dramatic testimony, people who preached in his name, who did miracles in his name, who cast out demons in his name. And yes, an unbeliever can do all three of those, and there's illustrations in Scripture of each, and yet be lost. For Jesus will then say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Now, if you came in this morning and you said you were less than 100, I have good news. You can be 100. I spoke to someone this week, and they said, no one can be certain. I said, well, the Bible says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, think, but no. Now, I do start on the premise this morning that the Bible is the Word of God. And if you're not certain on that, that's one of the most critical questions of life that you can ask and answer for yourself. But innately, just like innately, every man knows there's a God, there's no such thing as an atheist, biblically speaking. Every man knows there's a God through the creation around us, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things he's created. Even uh, the most pagan of pagans in Romans 2, Paul argues, uh, they have the law of God written in their hearts and their conscience either defends or accuses them. Who are they pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them. So no one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because man innately knows there's a God. And that's why the Bible devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Even so, the Scripture you may not know why all, there's such incredible evidence to say that this is the Bible. When you hear it, it's alive. And one of the ways, one of the internal proofs God has given us to show the authority of Scripture that He wrote it is prophecy. Prophecy is basically history pre-written. God tells in advance what He's going to do, not in some general fluffy ways like Nostradamus, but in specific ways. You know, there's no prophecy in the Quran. There's not in the Upanishads. There's not in the Vedas. There's not in the Book of Mormon. God never inspired an encyclical letter. The only book he wrote is the Holy Scripture. So remember, everything you believe is based on something. You either made it up, read it in a book, someone told you, but just believing it doesn't make it true. You can believe two plus two equals five. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. So if what you believe agrees with the Holy Scripture, hold on to it with both hands. If, he does, if it doesn't, kick it out. And so we start on the premise, sola scriptura, Scripture alone is our final authority. And if I say something to you this morning that's not found in the Bible, don't you believe it for one skinny moment. And so what we hope to do this morning is to give an overview of the Bible. You know, when I first went into the ministry in 1978, we used to call the presentation that we did back then an Acts 2 presentation. We used booklets like The Four Spiritual Laws or Steps to Peace with God that Billy Graham wrote. But it was assumed that people had a certain knowledge of Scripture, just like when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He's assuming they have a certain foundational knowledge. 
But then there's what we call Acts 17 presentations of the gospel. And we used to call an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel back in the 70s, those presentations that assume nothing. Well, that's really the kind of presentation we need to do today. I meet young people, 16, 17, 18 years of age. You ask them if they know who Moses is, don't know him. Uh, Do you know whether Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Not sure. And so we live in a day where you have to really give a big picture, and that's what this presentation does. And so this morning, we're going to look at five simple points that, among other things, explains how someone can be 100% sure. So we've gone through a few questions here. Um, We won't go through every single page in the booklet, but again, it's yours to take home, yours to read, and there's multiple copies as you leave this morning. We're going to start on page four. You can just look on the screen if you wish, or you can follow along, but try to stay with me. The temptation will be to read way ahead. You'll make me nervous. Turn the pages with me, all right? Point number one, uh, God created us. He created man to have a relationship with himself. The Bible opens with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God spends two chapters delineating that creation. And the height of his creation is when God makes a man and a woman to be his friend. Turn the page. On the next page, we learn that The Bible teaches people are a special or unique creation of God. Uh, Moses recorded here in Genesis 2, then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Then he writes, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. So we're not some highly sophisticated animal. We are made in the image and likeness of God, separated from the animal world. Only into humans did God breathe the breath of life and gave man a living soul. That's why you never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer. Only men have that desire. Only people have that desire to seek after God. And part of being made in the image of God, the Bible teaches, is God created you with a free will. Free will presupposes choice. God didn't make you robotic such that all you could do was obey. He wanted you to respond to his love, to his graciousness, to his justice, to his holiness. And so in the middle of page six, we read here, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, and it's emphatic in Hebrew, meaning in the very day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Did they eat the fruit? Well, if you're not sure, they did. Question, did they die that day? Well, it all depends on your definition of death. Now, we know God cannot lie. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. And God said the day they eat from it, they will surely die. They did die that day. They died on the inside. They died spiritually, and so Adam and Eve were running from God. And so the Scripture says there's none who seeks God, not one. They don't come back into God's presence. Oh, God, help us. We've failed so bad. Have mercy on us. No, they hide from the presence of a holy God. They chose. They rebelled against God. They died on the inside. They felt the shame and guilt of sin. They began to die on the outside. They, for the first time, began to age. And so, in one sense, we're born dying. We're getting older and older. And if the problem's not solved before we leave this world, we'll die eternally. So, there's internal spiritual, there's external physical, and there's 
forever death, eternal death. And so unless this problem is fixed before you leave this life or before Jesus comes back, and yes, he's coming back one of these days, probably sooner than most people realize, if he finds you without being born again, have you been converted? You say, I'm not even sure what that means. Well, Jesus three times over said, you must be converted. You must be born a second time. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. So you want to make sure you're born again in order to see heaven. The only exception to that would be little children who are unable to understand and embrace the gospel. A specific age is not given. I'm sure it's different for different children. I meet some children, eight, nine, ten, who are incredibly perceptive. And what is so sad is I'm meeting some ten-year-olds who are incredibly hostile already to the things of God. And so there is accountability before an absolutely holy God. Turn the page again. We've all chosen to disobey God, and our friendship with God has been broken. Uh, Moses records, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. So he's become like one of us. God wanted Adam and Eve to know good and evil simply by revelation. In that sense, God wanted them to know the living God. But now they had rebelled against God by experience. Unlike God, by experience, they learned good and evil. And actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it's like right in the middle of a sentence, God interrupts himself. Therefore, the Lord God drove them out. He put them outside of the garden. For had they eaten from the tree of life in a fallen state, they would have lived forever. You know, in one sense, it's a blessing that people age and die. Can you imagine if we never died? Can you imagine the capacity for sin on the earth if man just kept living and living and living until God came to judge the living and the dead? Man by nature is not typically getting better. He's getting worse, the scripture teaches. And God certainly did not want man to be fallen forever in a sinful state. So sin entered into the world. On the top of page eight, we read this. Sin, suffering, war. Uh, These are some of the problems. Greed, sickness, pain. They've entered into the universe. These things were not present prior to the fall. Man, through rebellion, brought these evils into the world. And again, in some ways, an expression of grace that God not only allowed man to fall, but all of creation to fall. Had he left them in an idyllic state in the Garden of Eden, it would have been terrible. Man might have said, oh, everything's fine. But God put man on notice. And God is just, he's holy. He allows consequences to come with sin. And so King David can write, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. It bears apples because by nature it's an apple tree. We don't, we don't commit acts of sins. I mean, it's not the acts of sins that make us a sinner. It's because by nature, by birth, by choice, by bent, we're sinners. And that's why we sin. From the moment of conception, I'm a sinner. You don't have to teach a child to Uh, tell a lie, they figure it out all on their own. You don't have to uh, teach a child to be selfish. By nature, they're selfish. You have to train them how to share. You have to teach them how to tell the truth. You know, when birds are born, we had a bird 
hornets' nests on our front porch every year. There's some wrens that seem to come, and I think they feel, I'm told, a certain sense of safety around humans, and they'll build nests in the reefs that we have. And, and as soon as they're born, those little birds begin to chirp. The mother doesn't have to train them how to chirp. They begin to chirp. They say, give me a worm. And you don't have to teach them to love a worm. They love worms. And she doesn't even teach them flying lessons. At some point, she'll just push them out of the nest. And that's what we're like. You don't have to teach us how to sin. By nature, by choice, by bent, we are little sinners. And so the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. Turn the page again. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of you know that the New Testament was written in Greek. The verb for sin, hamatano, the, uh, the, the noun hamatios, the adjective hamatolos, describe actually what we are like. The verb describes actions of sin. The noun describes what we are by nature and the adjective as well. There are pictures of folks who miss the mark. Many of you know that in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word for sin was an archery term. If you lived back in Bible days and you were aiming at a target and you missed it, they would say you sinned, you missed the mark. And God uses that very picturesque word to help us to see what we're like. That if the bullseye represents his righteousness, we've missed that mark, we've fallen short. Suppose you've done this many good deeds your whole life and I've only done this many. You might conclude, well, I've lived better than the preacher. I, I think I got a good shot of getting in. Somebody else might say, forget you. Look at Mother Teresa or the Pope or Billy Graham or whoever you think might be religious. The most religious person you can think of compared to Jesus way up there at the ceiling falls short of the glory of God. And so the scripture says, not only are we sinners, but there are consequences to our sin for the wages of sin is death. Now, human nature typically will say, well, I'm not all that bad. Well, the Bible says whoever keeps the whole law and violates just one point of it, he's become guilty of all. If you have a 10-link chain representing the 10 commandments, which link, if you're hanging over a cliff, is most important to you? <laughs> Every one of them is. Well, you know, it's okay if link three breaks. Or No, it's not. None of those links need to break. And James wants us to know that in one sense, we've broken the whole Decalogue. Either in action or in spirit, we have violated the commands of a holy, righteous God. All of us, Isaiah will write, and Peter quotes it, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone to his own way. And so the scripture says the wages, actually the word wage in the Greek New Testament was used in uh, the first century in terms of how you paid a Roman soldier his wage, his due. A wage is what you earn for what you do. And God says, our paycheck for being a sinner is death. Uh, Ezekiel says, the soul who sins must die. If you commit some heinous crime and the judge says your crime deserves death for these murders you've committed, you can't say, well, well judge, you know, I, I've never committed adultery, so I think you should let me go free. No, you break any of those links you're guilty. And if under our law in South Carolina, murder deserves death, and if under God's law, 
Your sin deserves death. You can't say, well, I'll keep the golden rule or I'll get baptized or I'll join the church because it can't satisfy the righteous standards of God. And so a day is coming, the Bible teaches here on page nine, when God will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the penalty. The word obey means to listen under. He's describing someone who does not respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's called in the Bible hell. You say, do you believe hell is real? Yes, it is. Jesus said more about hell than He said about heaven. If you or I die and we go to hell, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves because as we'll see, God made a way of escape. God desires, desires none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Paul said to, in his first letter to Timothy, he desires all men to be saved, but not all men will be saved because not all people will choose to be saved. So here is the problem illustrated on page 10. You can see on one side we have God who is holy, on the other side man who is sinful, and there's this great gulf that separates us from him. And people often think, well, if I just do more good works or follow a particular philosophy or moral code, that somehow I can reach God. But because God is so holy, the Scripture is clear, He can't allow sin or sinful man into His presence. In the uh, Living Bible, in the Revelation, it says, God speaking, I can't allow anything in my heaven that will defile it not even the smallest liar. It's a paraphrase, but it captures the meaning. One lie is enough to keep you out of heaven. Look, I, I was on my lawnmower about a year or so ago, and I threw a rock, and it hit a window, and it broke the pane. Now, I couldn't say, well, the, the pane's just partially broken. No, the window needed to be replaced. And we've sinned, and, and we think, well, if I just try harder and do more good, know that there's a problem. You've broken the law of God. I've broken the law of God. Sometimes children will come into the office, and I'll say, well, why is it that good deeds can't secure a place in heaven for you? And they'll often respond by saying, well, because you have to believe in Jesus. I'll say, well, now that's the solution, but that's not the reason. See, there are two reasons why being good can't get you into heaven. Reason number one is good deeds can't remove the pain of the, the penalty of sin or the stain of sin. If somehow from this day forward you never sinned again in thought, word, or deed, it wouldn't change the mess that's behind you, would it? And so good works aren't like this big eraser that can remove the stain of sin. And so the prophet says your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God. And number two, good deeds can't satisfy the penalty of sin. My senator years ago, I called him. It's been about seven years. And I said, I don't understand why you are blocking the pro-life bill in your committee three times over. I tried hard to contact you, but every time I tried, I couldn't get you. And finally, your secretary said, you're pro-life. He was pro-life. I didn't need to talk to him. He had the whole congregation buffaloed. So finally, he called me, and I said to him, Senator, how is it that you can be a pastor and represent us here in the great state of South Carolina and be in favor of abortion? I spoke to a woman this week. She said, well, I'm not sure abortion is wrong. I said, do you think it would be wrong the day before a baby is due to be born to take that life? She said, certainly not. 
How about a month before? No, not a month before. And I told her, I said I was on a free speech platform at Duke University, and I reminded the student body that in that hospital 100 yards away, some women may go in this week six months pregnant in danger of losing their baby, and they'll do everything in their power to save that little life. Someone else might go in six months pregnant, and they want that pregnancy ended, and they will exterminate that little life. So I said to her, you have to ask and answer, when does life begin? Well, the Bible's clear. Remember, everything you believe is based on something. The Bible teaches from the moment of conception, you are a person with all of the rights of personhood. We're not to interfere with that. And so I said to my good senator, he said, look, I'm personally against abortion, but I think it's a woman's right if she wants to take her baby. I said, then don't call yourself pro-life. It wasn't two weeks later that a young man went into that church with a gun, killed my senator and eight other people. It was a tragic day in South Carolina history. That young man has been condemned to death, and he needs to die for the evil that he's done. He can't say, well, I'll do community service, and somehow that will clean it up. And you can't say, I'll try harder, because the wages of sin is death, and only death is going to satisfy God. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So we just covered page 11. Now we're on page 12. Page 12, if you're following along. It was God's love that moved him to rescue us from our sin. John the Apostle wrote, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. So again, God comes to the rescue. By nature, the scripture says, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. You say, that's not my experience. I can't remember a time as a child when I didn't seek after the things of God. That was probably an answer to your parents' prayers, but it was certainly an answer to the work of God. You see, by nature, the Scripture says you can't come to Christ on your own. Jesus said it. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. That's why there's a sense of urgency to respond. You can't draw yourself into the kingdom. And if the Spirit of God today ends up knocking on your heart and pulling on you, telling you you need to make a decision, and you put it off, you've really put yourself on dangerous ground. Because the longer you tell God no, there will come a day when the Scripture teaches He'll give you your wish, and He'll stop working in your heart. This past week, it was tragic in Tyler, Texas. These are people who have utterly disdained the gospel. They had an unbaptism ceremony, and they gave them certificates of unbaptism. People who grew up in Christian homes, they renounced the faith. They walked up to the minister of this church, and the minister said, Hail Satan. And the recipient said, Hail Satan, and they put a satanic mark on their forehead. Look, there was an opportunity those people had at one point. But you see, they intellectually embraced the gospel, but they never respond volitionally. And there's many people like that. And so God comes after you, and the greatest expression of his coming is found here in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Of course, the world contextually is a world of people. For God so loved Carl. Put your name in there. 
that he gave his only begotten son, that if you or me or whoever simply believes the promises, you'll not perish but have eternal life. Please note it doesn't say you will have eternal life. You can have today eternal life. It's a present tense in the Greek New Testament. Turn the page again. Jesus makes this incredible statement. Truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes has. There it is. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, it describes eternal life as something you can have today. You say, well, wait a minute. I always thought eternal life is when you die and you get into heaven. That's included in the package, but that's not actually eternal life. You say, what is it? I don't have to wonder. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, sometimes we say, well, does he or she know the Lord? What do we mean by that? We're not just saying, do they believe that there's a God? We're not even saying, do they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, was raised from the dead? You can know all those facts and still die and go to hell. But do you know God personally? I know the President of the United States in terms of who he is, but I don't know him personally. And a lot of people know God that way. They know a lot of facts, and if they were raised in the church, they may know true facts about God, but that's not the same as knowing him personally. So think with me for a moment. Some of you, you said less than 100. Well, listen. I talked to a man this week. He, he said, I'm 98% sure I'm going to heaven. He came to meet the pastor. And I said, well, you can be 100. If you can get eternal life right now, how long does eternal life last? Forever. So if I can get it right now and I know I really have it, then I can be 100% sure that when I die, I'll go to heaven. You say, well, that's great. How do you get it? You got to believe in him. It doesn't say whoever believes about him. We live in America where, at least in 2019, Pew Research indicated 72% of Americans still said they were Christian. And it was a pretty broad definition. You know, some people call themselves Christians because they celebrate Christmas. It's higher in, North, in South Carolina. But I doubt that if Jesus came back today that 72% of America would go to heaven, especially in light of what Jesus said here on the top of page 14. Notice his words, enter by the narrow gate, for it's a causal meaning because, because he says, the gate is wide and the way, the road is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. Then he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Sounds like we got more going down than we got going up. Now remember in the context, if you read Matthew 7, he's not speaking about all the isms of the world. He's actually addressing those who say they are followers of Jesus. These are the ones he described who preached in his name, who did miracles in his name, cast out demons in his name. But he'll say, I never knew you. They knew God existed. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't know him by way of relationship. Neither did he know them by way of relationship, so I never knew you. So you want to be 100% sure. Note here on the bottom of page 14, it says millions and millions of people acknowledge certain facts about Jesus Christ, so they think that makes them a Christian. That's the most dangerous place to be, I suppose. To think you are a Christian, to know the facts of the plan of salvation, but it's not really true. You know the plan of salvation, but you've never personally met the God-man of salvation. That's a dangerous place to be. It's, I suppose, the worst place to be. 
because you can convince yourself that everything is fine. And so the demons believe and tremble. Luke describes someone who intellectually embraces the gospel, but they have never volitionally responded to the Lord Jesus. And so the Bible would teach it's not enough to believe about Jesus, like 72% of America. You have to believe in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Whoever believes in him should not perish. You say, well, what's the difference? How do I know which one I've done? That's what we're going to examine in the last two points. Everybody still with me? We're good? All right. Whether we're good or not, we're moving on. (laughs) Page 15, number four. Jesus Christ is the only solution to man's broken relationship with God, and only through him can you have forgiveness. It notes here the exact details of his birth, life, death, and resurrection were recorded many centuries before his coming to earth in the Old Testament. In fact, the entire Bible points to Christ. It's the focal point of all of history. So right after man sins, God makes a promise of a savior. Adam and Eve, if you remember, through what we might call fig leaf religion, through their own efforts, tried to cover their shame. So what did God do? God stepped in, and the first death in all the universe took place. God slaughtered animals, multiple animals. He gave them skins, plural, coats of skins to clothe their shame. God was teaching them a principle. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Cain and Abel came to worship the living God. Cain brought his best that he could produce. Abel, the scripture says in the New Testament, giving us divine commentary, came by faith. He came on the basis of revelation. In fact, Jesus tells us something about Abel that we don't learn in the Old Testament. Jesus tells us that he was a prophet. And so he indicts the Pharisees in his day with the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, the last prophet. You say, why is that important? Because in Acts chapter 10, the Bible says, all the prophets preach Jesus. And so just as we saw Sarah preach Jesus by her baptism, symbolically that her faith was in the death, burial, and the resurrection, through that blood sacrifice, Abel was preaching Jesus. And so God received Abel's sacrifice. And so all the way through the Old Testament, there are rivers of blood that flow because sin brings death. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, but they speak of me. He said, Moses wrote about me. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and believed. And so here's Isaiah the prophet. He lived 700 years before Christ. He said, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. El, most of you know, Elohim is the Hebrew word, El Shaddai, for God. And Hebrew, of course, reads from right to left, and even this English word kind of does. It simply means God with us. God will literally be with us. He is already, he'll state a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 9, a baby will be born. And among other things, the baby's name will be called Mighty God. A baby is going to come, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. God is going to become a man. And then the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Nazareth and said, how the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so if God became a man, you would expect him to be perfect, would you not? And of course, that's how Jesus 
is repeatedly described. Here, for instance, in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Excuse me. So, if the Bible says Christ died for sins, and he did, and he had zero sin, then the only way to understand his death is substitutionary in nature. And that's how it's pictured in the New Testament. Again, we read it in the pastoral prayer. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, and we just read the wages of sin was what? Death. While we deserve death, Jesus dies in our place. He dies for us. Now, if I wanted to die for you, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be qualified to because I'm a sinner. And I inherited the problem from my dad, Richard John Brogy. He got it from his dad, Charles Frank Brogy. He got it from his dad, Frank Charles Brogy. And you go back far enough, and we all go back to Adam. Everyone in this room is related. Now, the evolutionist wants to deny that truth. But the Bible makes a comparison between the one act of Adam and the one act of Christ. Just as through the one act of Adam, death spread to all men. At the fountainhead of the human race, it became polluted. And so everything downstream is polluted. The scripture teaches in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Because we're in the loins of Adam. So we can't just blame Adam like we're victims. We're participants. And so we're born with this fallen nature. So the Lord Jesus, with no human father, leaves heaven. Remember, unlike Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Christian Science or any of the other cults that say that Jesus was created, the Bible affirms he had no beginning or end. Remember, a baby would be born and the baby's name would be called Mighty God. And so the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and took the eternal deity of Christ and brought it together with perfect, sinless humanity. He's not all God and no man. He is not all man and no God. He is not half God and half man. He is the God man. And so as a perfect man, he could die for a sinful man like myself, but he is more than man. He is infinite. He is eternal. He could die for an infinite number of sinful people. You say, well, how do you really know for sure that he's God? Turn the page. The Bible would remind us of one of the greatest prophecies ever fulfilled on the middle of page 17. We call it the resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. How? According to the scriptures. Twice over, he's reminding us that the scriptures, the Old Testament, prophesied the death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, for many years when the church started, they couldn't turn to Matthew or Ephesians or Galatians or any of those books because they hadn't been written. What did they use? They used the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is on virtually, he's in every book and on almost every page, if you have eyes to see him. And so Paul just reminds the Corinthians that among other prophecies the Messiah would fulfill, He'd die, he'd be pursued for our iniquities. Isaiah writes that 700 years before Christ. Psalm 16, Psalm 22 describes that a thousand years before Christ. Man hadn't even invented crucifixion until about 300 years before Christ. The Persians invented it, the Romans perfected it as a means of capital punishment. He'll be pursued, he'll be buried. But on the third day, he'll rise again from the dead. Why is the resurrection central? 
to the New Testament because the scripture calls it a declaration. You could render it in some English Bibles, an announcement. What does it declare? What does it announce? That Jesus is Lord, that death could not hold him in the grave because he never, ever, ever sinned. And so the resurrection proves that he was sinless, that he could die as a substitute for you and for me. And so notice in the middle of page 18, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, if Jesus had said, I am a way, you could conclude there's other ways, being a good person, going to church, keeping the golden rule. But Jesus said, I'm the way meaning I'm the only way. He's not saying I'm a good way. He's not saying I'm the best way. He is saying I am the only way to God. Your baptism is not the way to God. Your confirmation is not the way to God. Your church membership, your golden rule, your trying hard is not the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way. And if he's not the only way, he's no way at all, because if he claims to be the only way and he's not, then he's either deceived or a deceiver. That would make him a sinner and qualified to save no one. And so Peter, with great authority, says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Turn the page again. On page 19, you can see that God built a bridge between himself and us when he sent Jesus to die. And if you remember, just before he died, Jesus said, it's finished. It's one word in the Greek New Testament, tetelestai. It takes three English words to render it. Oftentimes in Greek, the subject, the verb, and the object can be found in a single word. In fact, in 1961 in the city of Jerusalem, they dug up a first century tax office and they found these old pieces of parchment. They're on display in the Rockefeller Museum there in Jerusalem. And on it are lists of names and next to every name, when you paid your tax, the collector wrote, Tetelestai. It's what Jesus shouted from the cross. Paraphrase, it's finished. In other words, the debt that you owe God has been finished. It has been paid in full, which is why on the top of page 20 we read, for if we could be saved by keeping the law, then there is no need for Christ to die. Another translation says, if you could be saved by the good things you do, Christ died for no reason. More literally, it says, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you could become righteous, if you could hit the bullseye, going back to our error illustration, by the things that you do, your obedience to the laws of God. Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have just come to earth, taught us how to live. He could have skipped the crucifixion and ascended right up into heaven. But he comes to die. He said, for this cause I've come into the world. The prophet Isaiah in describing the Messiah said, he set his face like flint and Jesus keys off of that in Luke's gospel. Flint is hard and, and Jesus with a determined outlook was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he reminded his disciples, he said, no one will take my life away from me, I'm going to give it. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it back up. Now we often see his authority in the resurrection, we don't always see his authority in the way that he died. Now, if you remember, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark records an oikos, a multitude came to arrest Jesus. Matthew said a great multitude came to arrest Jesus. John's gospel said a Roman battalion came to arrest Jesus. There are two sized battalions in the first century, either 600 or 1,000. And in verse 12 of that chapter, he said a, a Roman commander, and the word he uses is kiliarchus. We get our English word chiliism from it. 
You know what chiliism means. You say, I don't use that word too much. Well, we don't, but it means a thousand. A leader of a thousand men came to rest Jesus. That excludes all the religious hoi polloi and the temple guard that they brought. Some estimate as many as 14 to 1,500 came. That's a small army. Now, the commander didn't know precisely which one was Jesus. And so, if you remember, there was an arrangement that Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, agreed to. Jesus, after he is greeted by Judas with that kiss, he turned and he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of the Nazarene. And Jesus simply said, literally, I am. Do you remember Moses is that burning bush? The bush is on fire but the bush isn't consumed by the fire. It's a miracle. I mean, you know, there are long days out there herding sheep, but this day, man, he was just enthralled. He wanted to see this miracle. And as he approached the miracle bush, God spoke from it. He said, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. And at one point, Moses asked God for his name. And God said, you can tell the Jewish people my name is Yahweh. I am. You tell them, I am whom I am commissions you. Not I was, not I will be, but the one true eternal God with no beginning or end. He is sending you, Moses. Jesus said to the leader of a thousand soldiers, whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And when he said it, the Bible says, they all fell backwards. Now, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint. Most Jews in the first century read the Greek Bible because they lost their ability to read Hebrew. That's why throughout the New Testament, you will see typically Old Testament quotes from the Septuagint. And this verb is used of a supernatural casting down. It's used in one place in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua in the Greek edition where the walls of Jericho are pushed down. It's used outside of the New Testament in Koine Greek of someone who by his power pins someone to the ground in a wrestling match. Jesus, by his word, pinned a whole army to the ground. And he doesn't say to his apostles, we're going to leave them there. We're getting out of here. No, he permits them to get back up on their feet. He asked them a second time who they wanted. Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I told you I am. You can take me, you can't touch any of these men. Now remember earlier that night, Peter boasted, I don't know about the rest of these guys, Lord, but I'll die for you if need be. I'll go to prison for you. And they all chided in, and yeah, we'll do it too. Peter took out a sword and went after the high priest's slave's ear and cut his ear off. Jesus healed it, rebuked Peter, reminded him he had legions of angels. God on one occasion calls down one angel, and one angel wipes out 185,000 of Israel's enemies. But Christ does not call down a single angel. Remember, his life will not be taken. He will give it. He permitted those men to rest him. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And it's only the blood of God, sinless blood, that can forgive you. Turn the page again. We find a promise Here on page 21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and just uh, in early next year, I hope to go through the handout on the Christian in the Bible. I'm going to give you 100 of the most non-negotiable verses every Christian should know. This is one of them. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 
Why? So that, circle those words, so that, here's the reason, so that. We might become, you might want to underline that word become because it indicates a change of status. So that we might become the righteousness of God, that's the bullseye in him. Now the he's and the hymns are clear from the context. He, the Father, made him the Son who had never ever sinned to be sin on our behalf. When Jesus dies on the cross, God takes all the sin of the Old Testament. People in the Old Testament couldn't get into heaven by being good. How are they saved? They're believing that God would make a provision in the future. Jesus died for their sin. God looks down the corridors of time. You know, you hear everything in a pastor's office. There's not a sin that I can find in the Bible that I haven't heard, and there's some gross stuff. And people often say, can God ever forgive me? All of your sin was future when Jesus died on the cross. Once for all time, Christ died for our sin. Peter said he bore our sin in his body on the cross. So the one who knows no sin becomes sin. Why? So that we could become God's righteousness in Christ. If this booklet is me and this Bible is Christ, if I am in Christ, God sees me through his son. He sees me as holy. That's why in the New Testament, every Christian, even the newest Christian is called a saint because sainthood is not based on performance. It's based on your position in Christ. So we're born outside of Christ, guilty, stained, condemned by nature, Paul said, children of wrath. That's why Jesus said, the one who believes in me is not judged. The one who does not believe, he's condemned already. The judgment's already been made. It's not like there's this future judgment in the sky where God weighs the good and the bad and he makes it determined. No, guilty, judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You want to be sure, certain, for God's reason, that you're being seen through Christ. You say, how could anyone know? Jesus said, your mouth speaks what's in your heart. Or you could say, if you wrote out the answer, I hope you at least wrote it out in the margin of your mind why God should let you into heaven. What you said really reveals where you are at. I asked one individual this week why God should let him into heaven. He said, I don't know. A lady told me the same answer this week. I don't know. It's a common answer. I don't know. I didn't know until I was 18. For the first time in my life, though I'd gone to church every week, I'd never heard the plan of salvation. One of the first persons I wanted to go share the gospel with was my grandfather. He was 86 years old. He had never heard this message before. He bowed his head there and received Christ. Less than a week later, he died. So we're born in ignorance. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. But how can you call upon him in whom you have not heard? And how will you hear without a preacher unless someone goes and tells them? Some people have an answer. They give an answer of good works. I had a man in my yard recently. I think I shared it in one of the services a few weeks ago. Tell me, how certain are you if you died today, you go to heaven? I'm 110%. I thought, oh, I'm going to get a great, good Christian answer. Why are you 110%? Because God knows what a wonderful man that I am. See, he had a false assurance. His answer is the second one there on page 22. He was saying good works equals salvation. We just read, if you could be saved by good works, Jesus died for no reason. Now, having been raised in the church, I would not have denied that Jesus was the Son of God, died on a cross, was buried, was raised from the dead. I'd seen the historical evidences. I was convinced it was true. I would have said, well, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I didn't believe in Buddha. I believe in Jesus, and I'm trying to live a good life. 
And I hope between my faith in Jesus and plus these things that I'm trying to do and some things I'm not trying to do, that that will secure heaven. I was on the Jesus Plus program, but the Bible teaches that won't make it either. In fact, there's a book in the New Testament that cancels out the Jesus Plus program. It's called Galatians. Paul said, if you add anything, even one thing to the finished work of Christ, you're saying his death was not sufficient and you, got, you can hide behind that good thing. You can say, well, God, part of the reason I'm going into heaven is because I've lived this way. And to folks who thought that way, Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, in quotes, the righteous. They came to call sinners to repentance. And so you have to admit you're spiritually bankrupt. That's the fourth equation here on page 22. You have to put your faith in Christ alone. What does that mean? To trust God for the next meal, to pay the electric bill, to keep your kids safe at night. Those are acts, daily acts of daily bread faith, but that's not what will save you. God asked you to believe him for something he already did 2,000 years ago, that when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, that that's sufficient to get you into heaven. So when we reach a point in our life and we own our sin, see, that's the problem in our day. I was witnessing to a young couple, and he said he wasn't sure. She said she was 100%, and she gave the right answer. Problem was, is and is, I suppose, is that they're living together and have been for some time. You see, you'll notice here on page 22 that good works are the byproduct of salvation. Good works do not even save or help save. They are simply the evidence of, and fruit of true conversion. Listen to these words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornication, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry in the Bible, though a third of the world still literally worships at an object and calls it a god. Paul broadens idolatry to anything you put above God, so he can say greed is idolatry. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, moikeia, that's extramarital sex, nor effeminate, that's the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Male prostitutes amongst men, the, in a lesbian relationship, there's the husband and the so-called wife. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look, you can't say I was born gay any more than you can say that, you know, I'm born a thief and therefore I'm not accountable. No, we're accountable trying to help a, a man, I won't give any specifics because I don't want to give him away, but he has a real alcohol problem. I said, your problem is spiritual. You've gone to all these different self-help groups over the years, and you've got zero change. You can't say, well, this is just a disease. Certainly it has diseased your body, but if it's a disease then God can't hold you accountable for that any more than he can hold you accountable for getting cancer like it would keep you out of heaven. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the nature of deception. Of course, the next verse gives a promise, and such were some of you. God can save anyone. We have former adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, homosexuals, sitting some here this morning in this service. Because God in his grace and mercy saved them. 
Paul said it this way, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or an, who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so when I lead people to Christ and say they're li- living immorally, I'll say, well, look, if, if you were converted today, if you were really truly converted, let me know when this relationship breaks up because then I'll be ready to baptize you. You see, you cannot truly believe without acknowledging your sin is sin. And we live in a day, I was speaking to a young woman, she couldn't have been 14 years old, had the LGBTQ shirt on. I asked her friend why God should let her into heaven. She said, well, how sure, 50-50, what would you have to do? I don't know, though she's going to a, supposedly a Bible-believing church. Her dad's a leader, she told me. How are you, honey? How sure are you? She said, I'm not religious. I said, can I tell you why you're not religious? She said, sure. Because you don't want to admit that what's on the front of your shirt there is wrong. And the Bible says in the book of Romans that you are suppressing the truth that you know about God. Because God wrote his law into your heart. You know what's fair, what's unfair, what's just, what's unjust, what's right, what's wrong. Because you're made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. So I am saying that you're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It will change your life. Now I'm almost done. Turn the page one more time. Stay with me. Don't wander. (laughs) You have to personally receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Page 23. But as many as received him... Speaking of Jesus contextually, to them he gave the right to become. Become because you weren't before. To become what? Children of God. I have five children. They're my children because my life is in each of them. When you're born from above, when you are put in Christ, the Spirit of God is placed inside of you. He can't come live inside of you when you're out here dirty, stained, and guilty. But when you're covered in Christ's righteousness, for the first time ever, Jesus taught Nicodemus the Spirit will come and live in you. That's the promise of the new covenant, that you'll become a temple of the Holy Spirit. We'll be speaking about this on Wednesday night. Many of you need to come, not just for yourself, but to train your children how to walk in the Spirit. And so he changes you when the Holy Spirit comes in. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Everything has become new. You become what you weren't before, a child of God, because God plants his life in you. Look at the next verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's salvation. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. So no one can boast or brag. It's by grace. Grace, Romans eleven six 6 is what you don't deserve. What does God owe Carl Brogy? The wrath my sin deserves. But it was grace that he so loved me and loved you that he gave his son. But just because Jesus died for all doesn't mean all were saved, will be saved. You have to believe in him or the counter word, you have to come through faith. It's a parallel word in the New Testament. To come through faith is to admit it's not of yourself, it's God's gift, it's not of works. It's not a reward for anything you've done. So nobody can boast or brag. See, some folks have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel. They know the plan of salvation. I was talking to a mom just recently. I said, your your, your girls know the plan of salvation, but look, they're progressing into their teenage years, and they have no desire even to be baptized. 
I said, that should concern you. Baptism doesn't save. Listen, if anyone tells you baptism saves, they're lying or they're grossly misinformed. The day Jesus died, there were three crosses. Jesus was on the middle. He's flanked on either side by Jews. Jews were involved in insurrections. They wanted to overthrow Rome. And of course, Matthew tells us these two men cursed, and it's the Greek word blasphemeo. We get our word blaspheme. They blasphemed Jesus. Luke tells us something that Matthew doesn't, that one there that day as they hung for six hours, turned to his friend and he said, we're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He's not worthy of death. He's saying, he's sinless. We're sinners worthy of death. How do I know he meant that? Because of what he said next. He turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I heard some clip on the internet and the basic point was is that this guy knew just about nothing, yet God saved him. Nothing could be further from the truth. He probably grew up going to the temple or in the synagogue and he realized someday Messiah is coming who would not only die on a cross, but he'd be raised from the dead. I'm seeing him pierced through for my iniquity. He has a kingdom. It's not all over for him that day. God is going to bring him out of the grave. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, was he saved by works or by grace? By grace. And that's how God saves us all. You say, I'm not as bad as that, dude. It's not the amount of sin. It's the fact of sin that condemns us. Was he baptized? No. But if he could have been, he would have been. And if you've been saved and you haven't been baptized, then you should. And I just said, look, it should concern you. Because you see, if on the inside you know Jesus, you'll be unashamed of him on the outside. So you can know intellectually. You can have even gotten emotional. Jesus speaks of those who receive the word with joy, they believe intellectually for just a short time, and then they fall away. No, there's a volitional decision that takes place. And so turn to page 25, and I'll conclude with this. You want to ask yourself this morning, where are you? Are you on the left side or the right side? If you said less than 100, you're on the left side. Because in the back of your mind, you're either thinking, A, you haven't done enough, and there's some areas you need to improve, or you haven't truly believed the promise that what Jesus did is sufficient. So you're on the left. You say, how do I move to the right? By faith. Faith is simply believing what God said. Some of you were invited here today. Some of you are live streaming us today because a friend asked you and you took them at their word. Listen, if you can believe a man's word, you ought to be able to believe God's word. Because God keeps all his promises and he can never lie. And God made a promise, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. It's a messianic passage from the prophet Joel. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus, you could say, I'll instantly save him. You'll have the gift, and gifts aren't earned, they're humbly received. The gift of eternal life. You can have that today. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, when you hear the message of Scripture, don't harden your heart. You know what the devil will do to some of you today? He'll say, I know this is true. I can't get around it. But I just don't want to make a decision today. God Almighty says today is the day to be saved. And you say, not today. You've hardened your heart. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, 
It won't be easier to become a Christian. It will be just a little bit more difficult. And do you know that there can come a time when you can put the final callus on the human heart? Jesus said it in the parable of the sower, that they may not believe and be saved. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to ask you, maybe you're here, you gave the wrong answers, you're not sure, but you want to become a Christian, you want to receive Christ as your Savior, every head bowed, every eye closed, you want to become a Christian today, would you raise your hand high so I can see it? Raise it high so I can see it. All right. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve heaven. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying in my place and taking my punishment. As the risen Lord, I trust you right now to save me. Remember, God can't lie. Just take me in his word. Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will make an unashamed public confession of my faith. Help someone today, Father, to come to faith in your Son. Help them to be unashamed, to make it public, to symbolize the inner work via baptism. And help us together to grow. We pray for this new week as we are purposing and looking to you for an opportunity that you would give us an opportunity to tell some dear soul about how they can be forgiven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.